0: Hi, everybody. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to remind you about an upcoming event that Josh and I are hosting on Saturday, May 9th. It's our 2020 Masterclass, a full-day live online event featuring incredible guest speakers, opportunities to interact with an incredible like-minded community, and more. You do not want to miss this. Our theme this year is resilience, which we chose back in the fall. However, now this topic feels even more urgent and important. Head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash 2020 masterclass to learn more and get your tickets. Again, that URL is culinarynutrition.com forward slash 2020 masterclass. You do not want to miss this day. And again, even if you can't join live, there is a recording. We can't wait to connect with you there. Now let's get to today's episode. Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. Today is the day we're uncovering the potential barrier to losing weight and also the less obvious reasons weight management is becoming an increasing challenge.
1: We'll be covering whether eating fat makes us fat, the different metabolic types, the role genetics play in weight gain and weight loss, what are obesogens and why they are so important, how to balance hormones and manage weight for life and how the microbiome affects our weight.
0: Hi everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another Hot Topic episode. I'm Megan Telpner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Joining me as always is a man who's weighed exactly the same since he was 18 years old, Josh Catalis.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition.
0: Having worked in the nutrition field for over a decade, it's been really interesting to see the shift in attitudes towards weight loss and how to achieve it. It's also been eye-opening seeing the evidence that confirms that the root of the weight loss challenge also often goes beyond diet and exercise. Now, just to be clear, Josh and I absolutely support body positivity, and we want everyone, including ourselves, to feel good in our skin. We also do this podcast to help empower you to achieve optimal health. And when imbalances and toxic loads in the body are impairing the way the body is intended to work, optimal health, including optimal weight for individuals, becomes a challenge. And oftentimes carrying excess weight is a symptom of other things going on in the body. And that's really what we want to talk about today.
1: There are so many factors that affect both weight gain, holding on to extra weight, and the barriers to weight loss. And that's what we're going to tackle And as you said, this isn't as simple as calories in, calories out. Speaking of which, let's start there, Megan. You've explained this in a past show, but for listeners, can you explain what a calorie actually is?
0: Yes, especially because you love my calorie explanation. I do. So a calorie, if you're unsure or don't know, is a measure of the energy created by the burning of a food, basically. So the way they measure the calorie count is using a machine called the bomb calorimeter, where a particle or amount of food is placed in a dish and it is lit on fire. The heat from that burning food travels up a tube into a vessel of water, and for every degree that water is heated, that is a calorie. Now, very effective way to measure the fuel of something, whether it be gasoline or a bagel, but it's not necessarily the most accurate way to account for health or specifically how calories function in the body because we don't have bomb calorimeters in our body. We have digestive systems, we have metabolic processes, and we have cells that need those calories to run and function. Now, what's important to remember, because we do need to talk about calories if we're talking about weight or weight management, is that different calories will function differently in the body. So there's a picture in Undiet, which Josh also loves, that shows a whole bunch of different 200-calorie food options. There's you know, a handful of candy or three hard-boiled eggs or more broccoli than you could ever eat, a few slices of whole-grain bread, all of these representing 200 calories. Now, the thing is, all of these items will function differently in the body. They'll digest or metabolize differently, and the calories from those macronutrients will be used differently. All of this leads us to this idea that fat in the diet is not what makes fat in the body necessarily, so, carbohydrates and proteins all contain four calories per gram, whereas a fat has nine calories per gram. So, gram for gram, fat is more calorie dense. However, if you eat, say, a handful of walnuts, that's a very quality, fat rich food, you'll digest that food more slowly. That fat gets converted to energy in the body that your body will burn or utilize at a slower, steadier pace. Less will get converted to fat in the body. Whereas if you have the equivalent calorie count of something that's high in sugar, a refined carbohydrate-based food or candy, that fuel source, that glucose, will metabolize very quickly, faster than your body can use it. And so as a life-saving mechanism, your body actually converts that into fat for storage. So, Eating quality fat does not increase your chances or increase the probability that you will hold on to extra weight in the body. I always wish these things were called different things that, you know, the fat in salmon or walnuts or avocado did not have the same name as like the extra jiggle that likes to hang out on my tush because they come from very different sources.
1: Right, and the name gives people that automatic connection that, oh, it's in the food, it's gonna end up on my body
0: there is something to calories in, calories out. If you eat continuously an abundance of calories beyond what you burn through activity and through metabolic processes, you will be inclined to hold on more weight. But the quality of those calories is a big part of it.
1: For sure, the quality is a big part of it. But also it's our processing unit, our human body, who we are. We all have different metabolic types. I think the first major realization that you and I had very, very different metabolic types was when we went on a two-week trip out West. And we were together all the time, obviously. We'd only
0: been dating about a year and we were not living together. So we were still eating most of our meals separate from each other.
1: Right. But when we started traveling together, we noticed that I was eating about three times as much as Megan. Megan had three meals a day. I had about six meals a day, you know, roughly speaking. But even at those meals, I was eating way more than her.
0: So in my natural body state or type, I'm naturally inclined to hold on to more weight than Josh's in his natural metabolic state. It's much more difficult for me to lose weight or to lean up and I need substantially less calories than Josh does, who has a much faster metabolism, as they call it.
1: Now, that probably gave you an evolutionary advantage at one point in your genetic history. Hey, I still
0: think I got an evolutionary (laughs) advantage. I don't get cold as quickly. Yeah. I don't get hot as quickly. I have a much more comfortable natural seat to sit on.
1: Well, what would have been great many, many, many years ago is that a meal would have satiated you for a lot longer, which it actually still does today. Yes. Whereas I would have been running around the plains of Canada, (laughs) searching for my next berry, wasting away (laughs) under the elements while you were sitting there kind of watching, you know, knitting something and laughing at me.
0: Yeah. Just letting my glycogen stores power me through the winter. Exactly. How do you know what metabolic type you are?
1: I think a lot of it can be determined through observation, through understanding how you respond mostly to carbohydrates. I think that's where a lot of the attention goes to. There's people that say, oh, I eat a piece of cake and it's on my hips in, you know, 24 hours. And there's people that say I can eat a whole cake and I'm the same weight every single day, even if I eat a cake every single day. So basically,
0: you just described I was the former and you were the latter.
1: Something like that. And this
0: isn't to say, again, there's no right body type. There's no right metabolic type. It's that for all of us, we have a natural balance, a natural place our bodies are meant to be when we are in optimal health. And some people will be more slender or more lean than others. And again, a lot in the media tells us there's one body type that's more right or healthier or more beautiful than another. And it's just not true. It's an aesthetic and it varies by culture. And what we're looking at is how do we be optimally healthy at our optimal weight for our body type? I think I just wanted to clarify that because we're joking about this, but there's also a lot of sensitivity associated with it.
1: For sure. If we use athletes as an example or a model, which I really like, you can look at different athletes in different situations like a sumo wrestler right needs that body fat and that body weight to be good at his sport or her sport are there female sumo wrestlers
0: i don't know i've never I'm seen not, a picture maybe, of one I don't that's know. where i've
1: seen most sumo wrestlers and then you know i worked on the football team in my uh university years and Certain positions needed a certain pound of body weight. So like when the season was starting up, they had to eat massive amounts of food to get their body weight up to be good athletes in that position. And then if you even look at, you know, long distance runners versus sprinters, very, very different body type and different way that they're going to process fuel and how that's going to make them excel at the particular sport that they're going to excel at.
0: And so for different metabolic types, there are different macronutrient needs, which we touched on. So you said about carbohydrates being a primary factor that when you have a faster metabolic rate, you can consume more carbohydrates and it has less effect on what gets stored as fat in the body and on the organs.
1: Exactly. So I can handle more carbs than you. Yes. But we also have to understand that we need to still operate within a certain framework. So if I decided, even though I can handle carbs, to go and have Coca Colas and and popcorn and sugar and white bread every single day. I'm definitely going to start to get out of my health, you know, range, right? And going to create some problems,
0: right? And if you want to know what kind of problems, listen to our genetics episode and <laughs> the express and how genes express themselves.
1: Just to address the more leaner body type, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're immune, also because they get what's called skinny fat. And skinny fat is when we have visceral adipose tissue where our internal organs are actually covered in fat. And what's interesting is this can actually be more dangerous than when we have fat on the outside of the body. Right. So this is something we all need to be aware of, no matter of our body type.
0: Right. And so when it comes to those macronutrient needs, once again... When you start to eat for your optimal body type, you know, you can read about all this stuff, but it's always most interesting when you can experience it or you know people are experiencing it because it's one thing to read the studies and the, the evidence and the tests on mice and all that stuff. But it's very different in humans and in clinical practice, which is where Josh gains a lot of insights. But what I noticed for myself was when I was on a higher carbohydrate, more vegan type diet. I was constantly hungry and I was holding on to excess weight. And when I shifted away from that and was eating more dense sources of protein and fat, my cravings dropped. And I, I wouldn't say my appetite dropped, but I was satiated after meals and didn't need to or feel the need to snack. And overall, was felt better eating less and was able to find a more balanced, healthier weight for myself.
1: Now, let me just play the devil's advocate here for a moment. Imagine you were still consuming that other diet that you weren't thriving on and you were struggling to lose weight and to get a better body composition or a composition you're more comfortable with. You would have been trying to resort to more exercise. You would have been maybe trying to cut calories a bit. All the while, you weren't actually fueling your body in the optimal way for you.
0: No, and wouldn't have been achieving it through any way that was either enjoyable or sustainable.
1: Right. And then what happened when you switched? How did you feel? I felt great. And was that an effort for you?
0: No, it wasn't an effort. And then it's become an ongoing non-issue, non-effort, something I don't even have to think about.
1: Right. So a lot of these weight loss programs that... Put people in serious discomfort by cutting calories, by making them count points, by restricting, by having them think about it all the time.
0: That's such a big one. Like to just not have to think about that calculation and not have to think about your body all the time is a really powerful way to actually start to feel really good in your body.
1: Right. So these programs really just stress people out. Yeah. And we know from the the actual statistics of these programs and the research that's been done is they're not sustainable for the majority of people that go through these programs.
0: It's somewhere between, I want to say like 80 and 90% fail rate with these diets, but people keep coming back and trying it again.
1: And, you know, with the spokespeople of a lot of these programs, did you know that they have to actually be speaking the truth? You know, if they say they lost 20 pounds on this program and they're that weight, you know, that has to legally be the truth.
0: I did know that. But there's usually really small captions on those advertisements say in conjunction with like high intensity interval training for 39 hours a week or whatever it was. Like there's usually some caveat to it than just the the diet alone.
1: For sure. But to put a period at the end of that sentence, we noticed that a lot of these celebrities promoting these programs don't quite sustain the weight that they're claiming that they got from that program years later.
0: So what we want to talk about today is how do we address this at the root? Because it's not just the diet. Because if it were, then it'd be as simple as cutting down your calories and the weight comes off or you find that optimal weight balance. And the same thing could be said for people who are trying to gain weight, add more calories, and you should be able to just hold on to it. But it's not that simple. And so what about genetics? Are genetics to blame? Is being overweight or underweight purely genetic?
1: There's definitely a genetic component on how our genes were programmed, not just after we were born, but also before we were born. And there was a very cool study about the Dutch when during the uh, Second World War in 1944 to about 1945, people living in Holland were in a serious famine because their food was basically cut off. They were on about 800 calories per day were the, the what was provided to them before the Nazis were defeated and they were able to get food into the country. So certain people were pregnant during that time, living in a state of famine. And there have been studies done on that population years later, like at least 30 years later. And the the offspring from those women who are starved are much more obese and overweight than the average population. Interesting. So we know that these genes get programmed at some level, but also what we've discussed in other podcasts is that we can change the expression of this throughout our lifetime.
0: We can. I mean, often when we see entire families that are overweight. It's not necessarily the genetic factor, but the lifestyle factor that they are living in similar ways, eating similar foods.
1: For sure. And I've had clients where I do a history on them. You know, uh, often, you know, I can think of two women at least in their 40s where this was an issue and I did their history and their parents were overweight. Their siblings were overweight. They were overweight like their whole life. So they have a bit more of a hurdle to cross but they still had success by following the rules and the laws of mother nature right. and, and following you know the different things we're going to address. So here.
0: one of the things you mentioned in the Dutch study was about famine. And so babies that were in utero during this famine had a higher rate of obesity. We're seeing a higher rate of obesity now, and it's not from famine, but it's from a similar route of nutrient deficiency where people are overeating, well, pregnant and otherwise, but severely nutrient deficient, which sets up their offspring for a similar pattern of obesity. They were starved in utero, and then they're being fed mal- you know, nutrient deficient foods in childhood, resulting in dramatic obesity. It breaks our hearts when we see obese children, because they are going to have a challenge their entire lives, or even just overweight children. It's programming their genetics as something they are going to have to work against to find that place of optimal health as they move into adulthood.
1: You made a really interesting point, Megan, which begs the question, with the Dutch study, was it the fact that they were so limited in the calories or was it the fact that they were so limited in the nutrients? And I'm not sure that this has been looked into because we see today with obesity that as you mentioned, people are overfed, but undernourished. They're getting lots of calories, but not enough of those nutrients. So that's where the parallel is Mm -hmm. where they're eating too much today and they're becoming obese. They didn't eat enough back then and their genes got programmed to be obese.
0: I interpret it directly as the nutrients because I think about you know, when you look at optimal diet during pregnancy and early childhood, it's getting in all those essential fats that are really so vital for the nervous system and the endocrine system of the developing fetus and then the food a mother consumes while breastfeeding or what goes into the formula to make sure primarily they're getting those essential fats, which are so important.
1: For sure. And we know with some, most studies that have taken place that when we do restrict certain methylators like B12 and folic acid, they end up obese. Right. Right? So this is some interesting stuff.
0: So genetics can play a part in weight. However, if you listen to our genetics episode, you'll learn about how we can affect the expression of the genes. So the genetics can be a contributing factor. What about something called obesogens? Let's talk about the the role obesogens have.
1: Right. Now imagine someone who is trying to do everything to lose weight. They're eating good foods, good whole foods. They're exercising like crazy. They're trying to control their stress, but they still have a world of chemicals around them. Right. right? They're using personal care products that are toxic. They're eating foods with pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, larvicides in them. They're getting exposed to plastics. A lot of these chemicals fall under the category of what are called obesogens. And obesogens, when they were discovered, they're actually discovered in aquatic life. There's this paint that's put on the bottom of ships to make sure like barnacles and algae and things like that don't grow on them. Because like if you have a massive tanker and you're going across the ocean on long distances, if you have those things growing on the bottom of your ship, it's really going to affect your bottom line. So they would paint on this stuff. And there was a chemical in it called tributyltin, which started to really affect aquatic life and feminize animals and do all these weird things. But it also went into our water system and they discovered that these chemicals do two things. First, they increase the amount of fat cells in our body. And two, they increase the amount of fat storage in those fat cells in our body. And that's why they were given the name obesogens.
0: So these are chemicals that are found in our drinking water and therefore they would also be found in the water used to grow our food. So they'd be in the soil and end up in any water-rich foods. So these actual chemicals that both increase the quantity of fat cells in the body. And what was the second part?
1: The quantity and the storage. And of the fat. storage.
0: So they ha- we have more fat cells that are storing more fat.
1: And these are in our personal care products and in our cleaning products in our homes. They're in everywhere we've spoken about in past episodes where we got to clean up our environment. So again, looping back around to that individual who's trying to do all this stuff to lose weight, they're still being exposed to chemicals that are telling their body and giving their messages to hang on to the weight.
0: Right, and what the other thing too, which I think is worth noting at this point is chemicals themselves, toxins themselves have an affinity to fat cells in the body. So you're now have more fat cells holding on to more fat which are now also attracting and holding on to more toxins that you're bringing in through chemical-containing personal care products, cleaning products, laundry detergents, all that kind of stuff. And you're basically creating a toxic soup that will increase your risk of disease and cancer, but also, and then it becomes a cyclical thing, cause an increase of weight to be held onto the body that directly contributes to your increased risk of different types of degenerative diseases and conditions.
1: It's a messy metabolic mess, Megan.
0: A messy metabolic mess, absolutely. So when we look at talking about organic food and clean personal care products, it's never just about, you know, what's going into our mouth and what we might think of on a superficial level when it comes to health, but it directly affects how our metabolism will operate, how how our genes express themselves and how our body will hold on to or shed the toxins themselves.
1: Now, what's interesting is there was this clinic type place in Toronto. I saw it in a number of places. I don't even know if they're around anymore. But what the program actually consisted of for the weight loss was a bunch of herbs that helped with detoxification and getting these toxins out of people's bodies. Now, to the uneducated person or the person who's not familiar with how detoxification works, it almost seems like a miracle right? when you take these things and you're not exercising more, you're not eating less, but you start to lose weight. So it just speaks to the fact that sometimes we have to go through these detox processes as part of this holistic approach.
0: That's why exercising isn't just important for burning calories and building muscle, because building muscle increases calorie burning rate, but it also helps you sweat out some of these chemicals from your body. Sweat is one of the primary ways to detoxify the body or shed the body from heavy metal, and the evidence supports this. It's also one of the reasons why infrared saunas can be so powerful for detoxification and also for weight loss. It's accelerating your metabolic rate. It's speeding up your heart rate, but it's also helping you to shed these obesogens from your body. We're gonna take a quick break here so that you can meet one of our vibrant, inspiring culinary nutrition experts. As our 14 week culinary nutrition expert program is offered exclusively online, we are grateful to be able to welcome students from all over the world. Arwa is a recent graduate from Kuwait and has the rare ability to offer her culinary nutrition infused videos and recipes in both Arabic and English. Here's Arwa to share more. Hello, everyone. My name is Arwa. I'm from Kuwait. I'm a 2019 graduate of the CNE program. I have a bilingual recipe health and wellness blog and an Arabic YouTube channel and in the process of becoming a health coach. The CNE program surpassed my expectations by far. I learned so much. I was challenged and grew in the process. Megan is a breath of fresh air. I love how she balances professionalism with being her authentic self. She's truly inspiring. The whole CNE team is awesome. You can literally feel the love pouring out in their support during the program. I'm turning the work I did into an ebook, and as a certified CNE instructor, I'm about to start providing cooking classes, and I'm sure my CNE experience will help me in becoming a better health coach. You can learn more about Arwa and all that she's doing over on anaarwa.com. A-N-A-A-R-W-A.com. And we have direct links to her website as well as her YouTube channel over on nutrition.com forward slash podcast. Just check on this episode for all the goods. Now, even though her videos are in Arabic, which I do not speak, I was enthralled watching her video demos. They are beautiful. And her gluten-free recipes are drool worthy. Hello, vanilla scones. So be sure to check out her work available in both Arabic and English. As I mentioned, our course is 100% online, so you can join us from anywhere. All you need is an internet connection. Our program is unique in that everyone goes through the course material together. And as such, there is amazing group accountability and community. All of our certified level students are assigned a dedicated program coach to offer further support along the way. This is a big part of our incredible success rate. Course details are at culinarynutrition.com forward slash program. And if you're hungry for a small taste of what we offer, be sure to take advantage of our free training at culinarynutrition.com forward slash free training. Now let's return to our conversation. We've talked about the genetic contribution. We've talked about obesogens. Let's talk about hormones because there are hormonal imbalances that will directly contribute to being underweight or being overweight. Can you explain a little bit about what hormones actually are? Similar to calories. I think we talk about them a lot, but we don't actually know what they are or how they work in the body.
1: Yeah, hormones are messengers that are secreted within an organ or gland Or sent to another organ or gland to give it a message to do something, right? So they're really just messengers floating around the body and they have obviously many different names and many different functions, but there are internal messengers that could influence our metabolism.
0: Right. A very common condition we hear a lot of people talk about right now is adrenal fatigue, which is basically the end stage of stress where your body can no longer produce enough stress hormones and you're basically having a meltdown. Now, oftentimes what follows high stress periods or adrenal fatigue is a complete thyroid blowout where the thyroid's no longer functioning optimally. And very often we associate low thyroid function with carrying extra weight. And it'd be really easy to just always be able to blame the thyroid, take some thyroid medication, some T3, some, you know, the the typical medical protocol and have everything just go back to normal, but it's not that simple.
1: It isn't. And let me connect some dots here. When we're in a stressful state, we release hormones like adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine, epinephrine. And those hormones are really important to help us survive that situation. They increase heart rate, they increase blood flow to the extremities so we can run or fight. They increase our quick cognition. But those hormones also can affect thyroid. And one of the effects is that it slows down the thyroid because the thyroid controls the speed at which all of our cells are doing what they're doing. It's like the thermostat for the body. But if it senses that we're in a dangerous situation, wouldn't you want to slow down metabolism, slow down how quick that factory is working and preserve resources? I think I would. Absolutely. So, you know, whenever we, enter a state of dysfunction or ill health, it really is just our body doing what it's supposed to do.
0: It's slowing down to conserve the resources.
1: Right. So looking upstream of a lot of thyroid issues, a huge part of that is to make sure that we're controlling and processing stress through our body.
0: A lot of weight challenge can be associated with thyroid, but... It's not the thyroid. That's a symptom then of other things going on, like an inability to effectively process stress, which means stress, stressful events, and that lack of skill or knowledge or commitment to processing that stress in a healthful way can directly contribute to weight challenges and the breakdown of the endocrine system.
1: But again, stress management isn't the sexy option. What's sexy is changing up the diet, trying this diet or that new diet is going to the gym, signing up for personal training, doing high intensity workouts. A
0: hashtag Transformation Tuesday post and a sweaty selfie and away you go.
1: (laughs) But the stress processing is just not that sexy. Like no one comes around and, you know, sees an advertisement that says, hey, if you want to lose weight, You got to come to my meditation class for the next three months. We got to meditate every day for about an hour.
0: Commit to sleeping.
1: You got to commit to sleeping and journaling and having a bath. And going for nice long walks. And in about three, four, five, six months, your body's gonna respond in a wonderful way. And that weight's just gonna fall right off. See,
0: I'd like you to start speaking to me in that voice <laughs> at bedtime, if you wouldn't mind.
1: <laughs> Why did you start to doze?
0: I got a little, I got a little rested. But that's the thing. Like, we want these dramatic transformational results. And most of this is long-term lifestyle changes that are sustainable that just become how we live.
1: Those are the ones that stick. You know, I see this time and time again with my clients where we start them on a program. Maybe one of their goals or main concerns is to lose weight. And they lose a, you know, a good amount at the beginning, depending on where they're starting. But then they kind of reach a plateau and they say, oh, it's just not working anymore, coming off. And I say, oh no, it's working. It takes time for the body to see those signals and respond and take you to the next level and the next level and the next level, especially if you've had years before that of being out of balance.
0: I remember when I first started practicing as a nutritionist, when I still saw clients one-on-one and people would come to me for weight loss and they wanted the calorie plans and the the portion controls. And it was so frustrating to me because I would do the intakes and be like, okay, but your hormonal system's completely out of balance and you're not sleeping. None of this is gonna work. No calorie deprivation or any of those plans is going to work if your body is not functioning as it is intended to function. Before we move on, I just want to touch on one more factor regarding the thyroid and even on a on a larger scale on the, the entire endocrine system, which is... The chemicals. It keeps coming back to the chemicals. There's a really great website, slash terrifying, called whatsonmyfood.org, where you can look up and see the chemical load on different conventionally grown foods. And one of the categories they have are endocrine disruptors, where in the pesticides, in the stuff, and the fungicides and the herbicides and all the stuff being sprayed on conventional or what I like to call chemically grown food contains endocrine disruptors It will directly affect not just our thyroid, but the entire cascade of hormones in the body, which can all have that effect, not just on weight loss, but on those systems functioning optimally.
1: And many of those are obesogens.
0: Many of those are obesogens. Can you also talk about halogens and how that affects the thyroid? I love your parking spot analogy.
1: For sure. There's a category of elements. If you look at the periodic table, we all have a little post-traumatic stress from having to learn the periodic table in chemistry. But there's one column that are called halogens. And in that column, we find iodine, which is critical for the thyroid. But we also find chlorine, bromine, and fluoride. And because they have similar properties, they actually compete for the parking place in your thyroid and whatever we have the most of, that's going to take up that parking place. So if you're exposed to chlorine in showers and the water you're drinking and wherever else, if you're exposed to bromine, I don't know if I mentioned that one, but it's also on there in pools. If you're exposed to fluorine uh, or fluoride in your toothpaste or at the dentist or whatnot, this or can Or drinking all, water. Or the drinking water. This can all inhibit the uptake of iodine and cause issues in your thyroid. So that's another thing that we want to address in the chemical world.
0: So we've looked at genetics, we've looked at obesogens, we've looked at the hormonal contributors and factors that affect the hormones. Now let's look at the microflora imbalance and how the actual makeup of bacteria in the gut can affect weight gain and weight loss. So in our gut, in our bellies, our intestines, there is optimally a perfect little micro community of bacteria that function to support optimal digestion they helps it helps support our immune function there's new research that shows that it actually affects our brain health and cognition how we think and process information so this balance in the gut of bacteria is fundamentally important to the root of our health it is the the core center of our health literally and physically
1: yes we actually do stool tests sometimes on our on our clients. And there's a family of bacteria called Firmicutes.
0: Firmicutes. They sound so cute. Yeah.
1: And there's another family called Bacteroidetes.
0: I don't know why that one's not as
1: yeah, cute. Yeah, that one's a bit longer, more of a tongue twister. But these guys need to be in balance. So when people, they actually called it, I think they used to call it that. It might've changed in the lab, but they used to call it the adiposity index. And when you had a much higher ratio of Firmicutes to Bacteroidetes, It was an indication that you were actually able to extract more calories from your food and therefore cause weight gain or higher risk of being obese or, you know, overweight. Interesting. So that's just an example of how these little bacteria that live within us, they also have a preferred fuel, Uh, just like we have a preferred fuel. And, you know, maybe if we dove into this a lot deeper, we might get into the fact that we don't eat for us. We actually eat for the bacteria in our
0: gut. So when I'm like craving something sweet, I'm like, it's not me. It's the formicutes.
1: It's possible.
0: (laughs) So what causes the microflora imbalance? What causes this bacteria to go out of optimal balance? Well, guys, this may not surprise you, but refined foods, chemicals, pesticides, all of that will affect it. Alcohol, Is a big contributing factor, of course. A lot of refined grains, refined carbohydrates and sugar predominantly. Antibiotics are going to affect that because that'll just wipe everything out. And then it's usually the more aggressive, I don't want to call them bad guys because they're all part optimally of of the balanced ecosystem. But there can be more aggressive bacteria that can take over in the regrowth if we don't have a part in the re-inoculation, meaning putting in more of the good guys.
1: And here's an interesting one too. Underexercise. And over-exercise can also influence the microbiome in a negative way.
0: Over-exercise is a big one because we think that, you know, I am working out, I'm getting fit, I'm getting strong, I'm losing weight. But overexertion can have a really challenging impact on the health of the microbiome.
1: Yeah, the research shows that ultra-endurance athletes actually have as bad of a microbiome as elderly in long-term care facilities.
0: And speaking of elderly and long-term care facilities, another challenge to our microbiome is sterilization, meaning antibacterial agents in soaps, things like triclosan, hand sanitizers. This triclosan chemical is in garbage bags. It's in drinking hoses. It's on yoga mats. It's in earplugs. There's all kinds of personal care products that contain it, although they're working on banning it in certain things. But all of these antibacterial agents are just that. They're antibacteria, anti-life, and they are clearing out and creating or contributing to this imbalance in the gut. And the last contributing factor is prescription or pharmaceutical medications, that will also have an impact. And that includes the birth control pill.
1: Absolutely. So to get this gut back into balance, how are we going to do that? We're going to do basically the opposite of of everything Megan just mentioned. We're going to get rid of the chemicals. We're going to start to eat whole foods with lots of different, wonderful, soluble fibers. We're going to get the sugar out, we're going to...
0: Bring on the fermented foods, pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, miso, tempeh, kefir. What did I miss?
1: There's lots lot There's there. a lot. I mean, There's lots. So bringing in those
0: there. fermented foods help re-inoculate that gut and, and contribute to that healthy balance. There's also prebiotic foods, things high in inulin, like Jerusalem artichokes, onions, garlic
1: plantains.
0: Plantains, a little sautéed plantain with some cinnamon on it. That is a delicious way to work on the health of the microbiome.
1: But really anything with soluble fiber, any fruit or vegetables is gonna be some sort of prebiotic. So that's also why we wanna get variety into our diet because different ones feed different bacteria in our gut.
0: So to summarize, when it comes to weight loss, it's not just about the food. I'd like to think it's obvious, but obviously sitting around, not moving your body and eating a heavily processed, refined diet, a lot of fast foods, a lot of the bad trans fats, that is going to directly contribute to carrying excess weight. However, there's a lot of unknown contributing factors, which we have covered or or less known or less acknowledged. And that's going to be part of the equation for sure. So a big part of maintaining an optimal weight, whatever that looks like for you and your body type is going to mean eating a whole foods diet that is unprocessed from that store's perimeter, optimally grown without chemicals, and that you are varying that diet, eating different things all the time. So you're getting that really good span of nutrients, that variation that our bodies need to thrive on. And of course, on the Culinary Nutrition blog, there are hundreds and hundreds of resources, and we've handpicked a few for you, to help you bring these whole foods into your life in your everyday eating.
1: The second one, which I think is well-known for most people, is exercise. You got to move. Our bodies were meant to move. Do not become... Tin man from the Wizard of Oz. Everything will seize up.
0: Or the sloth.
1: And so, exactly, and slower your metabolism. So you got to move, you got to burn some of those calories. There's going to be a right exercise for you and your body type. You don't want to do too little. You don't want to do too much. Moderate. Yeah. And the best exercise when it comes down to it is the one you'll do regularly.
0: It's the one that brings you joy and makes you feel really good inside your body when you're doing it, after you've done it, so that you'll be motivated to do it again tomorrow and the next day. One thing we didn't mention with exercise, which relates so much to the endocrine disruptors we talked about and obesogens, is that exercise helps move the lymph in your body that will contribute to enabling your body to actually detoxify and shed those chemicals that build up and just moving those organs around can be really, really powerful. Sun salutations in yoga has been said to increase lymphatic drainage, lymphatic movement by 20 times. So doing that basic sun salutation A six times around, or maybe for 20 minutes, if you have the time, that alone can have dramatic impact on just moving and grooving things in your body.
1: Today, it's essential to eat organic and to reduce the chemical intake and exposure. We spoke about obesogens in detail. We mentioned some other chemicals. We have to get these things out because these could be the wrench in the gear That's preventing us from getting where we need to get to, even though we're trying all the other stuff, eating right and exercising. So you got to get those chemicals out of your life.
0: If you need that inspiration, go to that website, whatsonmyfood.org and just have a look at it and then consider what the cumulative volume is in your daily consumption and the environmental working group does release annually their dirty dozen and clean 15, which will give you the hierarchy. So if you're only going organic with some things that will help guide you along.
1: Another connection we made for you today was on stress reduction and stress processing. If you have chronically elevated stress hormones, your body's going to think it's in danger. It's going to hold on to weight and that's going to be an issue. So we have to find ways to move stress through the body on a regular basis.
0: And of course, we want to nourish a healthy microbiome by avoiding those antibacterial agents and eating foods that are rich in those probiotics, like fermented foods, the prebiotics, the onions, garlic, Jerusalem artichokes for a few we talked about, and plantains. But really looking at how we rebalance and re-inoculate to create a healthy microbiome, which is important for weight loss, but also our immune system and for cognitive function and digestion.
1: So I think by this point, you can understand now that it's not one magical diet. It's not one magical exercise. It's not one magical supplement. This truly is a holistic approach that will help your body be in a place where it's supposed to be based on your genetic makeup and your metabolism, not for a month, not for a year, but for your whole life.
0: This isn't going to be a dramatic weight loss or transformation journey. It's building up your body and supporting your body to function how it was intended to function. So we got to sort of clear away some of that waste and that clutter and those chemicals and things that aren't supposed to be in our body or in our our environment so that it really can uprate our metabolism and let our body's processes do what they were supposed to do. Let us get the nutrients we need from the food we eat. And most importantly of all, so we can feel really great inside our body from when we wake up in the morning to when we go to sleep at night and then sleep well through the night and have the energy, the excitement and the inspiration to do it all again tomorrow. I wanna thank you so much for joining us. Remember, it's up to each of us to find the balance we need to feel good in our skin. That takes work both in physical day-to-day decisions about what to eat and how we move, but also takes mental work to love the body we are in in this moment. It is that deep love and respect for our body that invites us to wanna take the best care of it possible. And guys, as always, there's more. If you wanna take what you've learned in today's episode and go deeper, please head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast and choose this episode to access additional resources. If you're feeling inspired, perhaps this is a year to join our tribe and become certified as a culinary nutrition expert. The culinary nutrition expert program runs only once a year, and we have a celebrated community of graduates in over 65 countries. Join us to be part of this powered tribe. Learn more at culinarynutrition.com forward slash program and be sure to save your seat in our next program information session at culinarynutrition.com forward slash info session.
1: Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you again next time.